The following is a message from the annual faculty conference at Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 760-480-8474 online at wscal.edu or call 760-480-8474. I'd like to pick up with some of the themes with which Dr. Horton began this morning. And I want you, and I, and I would like to begin in the way that Dr. Baugh did, and that is to call your attention to some very important biblical passages. Genesis 2.17. What did God say? The day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Some have suggested, as Dr. Horton mentioned, that there is no distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, that there was a gracious covenant before the fall and a slightly more gracious covenant after the fall. This has been suggested by a number of uh, theologians, Karl Barth, most notably, but also Klaus Skilder and Norman Shepard and a number of the fellows who are associated under the heading of the Federal Vision or the Auburn Avenue folks. And then I'd like you also to turn with me to Luke 10 and to look at verses 25 through 28, just to begin. We have a lot of material. We're just getting started here. Luke 25, God's Word says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to, with the intention of putting him, Jesus, to the test. Teacher, what shall I do? He's noticed that question to inherit eternal life. He, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Now listen, do this, and you will live. The day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And Jesus, in answer to the question, what must I do, did not say to the man, well, my son, you're confused. There's no doing involved. There's only trusting and obeying and cooperating with grace so that eventually, if you cooperate sufficiently, God shall approve of you. No, our Lord Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and live. And then I'd like to call your attention to one more passage before we begin, and that's the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 30. Doubtless you're very familiar with this passage. What did Jesus say? What does Scripture say? When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. What is finished? And when did it start? Did it start at his baptism? Did it start at Golgotha? Did it start when they whipped him? Did it start when he carried that cross up the hill? Did it start when they nailed him? On the cross, or did it start when he was in the womb 
of the Blessed Virgin. What did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? Did he mean to say, as many medieval theologians suggested, and as is being suggested today by ministers in our own churches, when he said, it is finished, did he mean to say, I have done my part. I have made it possible for you to be saved. Now you must do your part. Or did he mean to say, I have accomplished all of the work my Father gave me to do and that I voluntarily took up so that everyone who believes in me is saved. I submit that uh, that latter is a much better summary of the meaning of tetelestai than the former. In the controversy then between Protestants and Roman Catholics, there has historically been no question whether Jesus obeyed God's law, but only to what effect did he obey the law. Did Jesus obey the law so as to make it possible? And we have that same controversy with the Arminians, who said Jesus has made salvation possible. How many times have you turned on the television or the radio or sat in church and heard someone tell you Jesus made salvation possible? And all you must do is, and then fill in the blank, frequently it's not trust and rest in the finished work of Christ. Frequently, just as often as not, it's something else. The Apostle Paul says, as we understand Scripture, that if you say anything else, you have not preached the gospel. Protestants, historically, have always affirmed that Jesus did not die to make salvation possible, to make it possible for us to cooperate with grace toward future justification, because we've always said that Scripture is very plain. Romans 5, 1, as Dr. Ball pointed out, says, Having therefore been justified. Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've all agreed on that. And Rome has always said we're wrong. Rome has always said Jesus died to make salvation possible for those who cooperate with grace. Despite the formal unity among Protestants on justification. Questions have arisen persistently among some, as Dr. Godfrey mentioned, throughout the history of our churches about the nature, intent, and effect of Jesus' law-keeping and its relation to the justification of sinners. So what of Jesus' obedience is actually imputed to sinners? Did Jesus obey the law as his qualification to be a sacrifice and to remit sins, or did he obey the law so that we do not have to for justification? Whatever the Reformed criticisms of Jacob Arminius, it is clear that he understood the issues concerning active obedience. And he summarized the question uh, late in his life in his Declaration of Sentiments in 1609. He said, quote, Is the obedience or righteousness of Christ which is imputed to believers... Notice even Arminius was not calling into question imputation here. 
late in his life. Rich Lusk is. And in which consists their righteousness before God, is this only the passive obedience of Christ? Is it not, he asked, he went on to ask, in addition to this, that active righteousness of Christ which he exhibited to the law of God in the whole course of his life and that holiness in which he was conceived. Now Arminius, as was often his practice, refused to take a position, at least openly. His followers, however, were much more willing to take an open position and they openly rejected the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. And so had others. Uh, before them, a Lutheran theologian, uh, Karg, had rejected the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. And later, uh, Piscator, well, later than Karg, in uh, the late 16th century, Johannes Piscator, John Fisher, who, uh, would reject the imputation of the active obedience of Christ on really two grounds. First, that it's unjust. God's justice cannot be, he said. Notice how he puts this. Cannot be that he can require for us both obedience to the law and punishment for disobedience. It has to be one or the other. He cannot require both. Right? That's, that's where he started. And secondly, Piscator said, if you say that Jesus obeyed the law for us, and that obedience is imputed to us, and on that basis our sins are forgiven, people will not behave themselves. Those are his two primary objections. Those were Karg's objections, and those were the objections of the remonstrants. And remarkably, those are the objections of people in our churches who are denying the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. Now, let's clarify some terms before we go on. Given the way that we oppose them in this discussion, active and passive. In, in English, that could be uh, confusing. And I, and I understand why people are sometimes confused. It might tend to create the impression that the work of Christ is being considered chronologically. That is, we're thinking about everything Jesus did before uh, his baptism, perhaps, or before he appeared uh, before the Sanhedrin, or, or wherever you want to mark the point of his suffering. And then, uh, so he has active obedience up to a certain point, and then thereafter it's passive. People have often talked that way as if that's what it means, but that is not, in fact, what we have meant by active and passive. And we don't even mean by passive those things which are done to Jesus. Passive is simply a very literal English translation of the Latin, which is rooted in the noun passio, or the verb passio, to suffer. And all we have meant is that the entirety of Jesus' obedience is one obedience with two aspects. The entirety of Jesus' obedience is one obedience with two aspects. He was active in all of his sufferings, actively obeying the law of God all of his life, right through the crucifixion. And he suffered in his active obedience of the law all of his life, right through the crucifixion. These are merely two aspects of the same obedience. So let's, let us not be confused about what we mean when we say active and passive. Active means Christ's intentional 
and positive fulfillment of God's law at every moment of his life. And passive means that all the time, as the Heidelberg Catechism says in question 37, all the time he lived on the earth, but especially at the end of his life, he bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the whole human race. Two aspects, one obedience. Now, there are two, uh, in the contemporary discussion, and we'll be very quick about this, but two groups of people dealing with the question of active and passive obedience. In the modern period, people such as Machen, and you're familiar with the famous telegram, John Murray, uh, G.C. Burkhauer, more recently Robert Lethem, uh, Robert Raymond, William Barons, Morton Smith, uh, and, and before them even, surprisingly, Emil Bruner, neo-Orthodox theologian, and Thomas Oden, who is an evangelical Wesleyan theologian, they have all affirmed the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. Now, the list of critics is a little shorter, but, but notable. Alan Clifford, an English Emeraldian theologian, has uh, attacked the doctrine of, of active obedience on essentially the same grounds uh, as Piscator. That is, it's unjust and it weakens sanctification. In fact, he goes on to say that Jesus uh, so made salvation possible that our obedience is just as essential to our justification as Christ's. Our obedience is just as essential to our justification as Christ's. Norman Shepard recently, in, not in writing so much explicitly, but in some conference uh, addresses, has twice publicly repudiated the doctrine of the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. And Mr. Lusk, to whom we've already referred, uh, not only rejects the doctrine of the active obedience of Christ, he rejects the doctrine of, of imputation. We don't need anyone else's righteousness credited to us, he says. And uh, from a dispensational point of view, uh, Andrew Snyder, uh, some of you may know from Southern California, has uh, criticized the doctrine of, of the imputation of active obedience on the basis that it tends to diminish uh, the work of Christ on the cross. Well, let us think about Mr. Lusk for a few moments, and then we'll press on to deal with some of the obje uh, objections and try to put this discussion in a theological and historical context. There was a conference last summer um, to which uh, several Reformed theologians were invited. Uh, Rich Lusk was among them, and he responded to a paper by Morton Smith, who had defended the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. And he responded uh, by making several uh, criticisms of the doctrine. Uh, one of the criticisms he made was that it's not really a historical Reformed doctrine inasmuch as it really only came into existence in the 17th century under the influence of people who were essentially ruining Calvin's theology. He's following the, the uh, reading of history uh, propounded by J.B. Torrance, David Weir, and a number of other uh, theologians who are more or less influenced by uh, Karl Barth and the Barthian reading of the history of Reformed uh, theology. We don't have time to do the, the historiography here, uh, but, but certainly this way of reading the history of Reformed theology has been challenged significantly by a number of Reformed uh, or, or scholars of Reformed theology, uh, Richard Muller, uh, and, and many others. I, I've written on this, and uh, a number of us are satisfied that, in fact, it is not the case that these doctrines were invented in the 17th century. They have deep roots, as Dr. Horton pointed out, not only in the early fathers, but, uh, but also in Luther 
and Calvin, and we'll see that in a little bit in a few moments. He also complains, does Lusk, that creation is inherently gracious. Creation, he says, is inherently gracious, and therefore grace precedes anything Adam might have done by way of merit. Merit is an illegitimate category. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism says says something quite different. Did God create man thus wicked and perverse, it asks. And it answers, no, God created man in righteousness and true holiness, that he might rightly know God as creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness. There's no grace in the Heidelberg Catechism before the fall. Why does it say that? Because Thomas Aquinas had said, by virtue of being human, we are defective and we need grace. The function of grace is to complete humanity because humanity, creation, is broken. You have these little moral greeblies inside of you by virtue of being human. And these little greeblies run around until you get enough grace to sort of keep them down. They're like weeds, and, and, and grace is like a roundup. As long as you spray the roundup, it keeps the weeds down. And in the fall, right, we sort of lost the roundup, and the weeds just sprung. But not so bad that we couldn't do anything about them, you see. Mr. Lusk wants to take us back to Thomas Aquinas. He says he wants to deliver us from medieval theology, but having delivered us from medieval theology, he's driven right into Thomas's driveway. <laughs> I, Thomas is a friend of mine. I know where he lives, and I know how to visit him without moving in. <laughs> we didn't say that grace perfects nature. We said that grace renews nature because God created us good. Tove, it says. There's nothing broken in creation. There's no need for grace in creation. Adam was good, and he had the ability to choose the good, or he had the ability to choose to disobey. And the mystery and the tragedy is that he chose to disobey. He didn't fall from grace. There was no grace from which to fall before the fall. That's the nature of grace. That's what, that's what makes grace grace, is that God comes to those who are fallen, who are rebellious, who are disobedient, who are dead in sins and trespasses. After all, did not God say, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die? You see, in their scheme, grace isn't really very gracious. It's just a second chance. In the biblical scheme, grace comes to those who not only are not meriting, but who actually positively merit something else. The exact antithesis of grace and that is relentless, eternal punishment, immutable punishment, exposure to divine justice and wrath without mitigation. So Mr. Lusk says that Adam and Jesus had not legal relations but with God, but filial relations, son relations, family relations to God. And sons, he says, don't really, by implication, have to obey the law. And so the test that Mr. Lusk has to pass is, does that, is that how Jesus thinks of his own work and ministry? Mr. Lusk goes on and he says that we don't need the imputation of the active obedience of Jesus because that relies on unbiblical notions about law and gospel, about merit, which he says comes from the medievals. There's no merit in Scripture, according to Mr. Lusk. So if we find merit in Scripture, then we know he's wrong. And it comes from a a contractual construction of the covenant. Well, yes and no. Mr. Lusk confuses the covenant of works with the covenant of grace. And so 
Yes, from his point of view, I can see how that is. But we who understand the difference between law and gospel and the covenant of works and the covenant of grace understand that, yes, the covenant of works was a contract, but the covenant of grace is not. He says, Reformed dogmatics has urged seriously by putting such freight on the imputation of the active obedience of Jesus when, in fact, it should have been put on the resurrection. He said, Machen's telegram should have said, so thankful for the resurrection instead of so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. The problem with, with the imputation of active obedience is that it de-eschatologizes the work of Christ. And I say, not true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mr. Lusk, that is eschatology. The final judgment burst into history. When Jesus said, it is finished. Now the Son of Man, when the Son of Man is lifted up, Jesus said. Now the evil one is defeated. That's eschatology. He says the new age is not brought in by the fulfillment of the old. It's inaugurated in his resurrection. No, it's inaugurated in the incarnation. Did not Jesus say, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's Mr. Lusk who misunderstands eschatology, it seems to me. The solution, he says, is to turn away from active obedience and toward union with Christ. With regards to justification, this means, he says, that my right standing before the Father is grounded in Christ's right standing before the Father. So far, so good. It gets a little more complicated. So long as I abide in Christ, he says. Well, okay. What do you mean by that? He says, I can no more come under the negative Father's negative judgment than Jesus himself can. But he continues, This justification requires no transfer or imputation of anything. It does not force us to reify righteousness into something that can be shuffled around in heavenly accounting books. Well, in response, uh, I want to say something very different. I want to contend that as the voluntary guarantee entailed by the covenant of redemption, that eternal agreement between the Father and the Son, and as the second Adam required by the covenant of works, after all, it, is not, it wasn't 17th century federal theologians who called uh, Christ the second Adam. It was the Apostle Paul. And I think he wrote Scripture. <laughs> I could be confused, God the Son became incarnate to fulfill the legal obligations of those two covenants. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the covenant of redemption, or sometimes called the pactum salutis, but it's easy. It's works for the Son, and it's grace for us. That's easy. It's not complicated. And the covenant of works is a works covenant. It's a law covenant. It meant hard work for Jesus. And the good news is, he did that work. That's why he was in Gethsemane. That's why he sweat great drops of blood. This wasn't playtime at McDonald's. This was serious warfare, and it didn't just begin in Gethsemane. By his positive, that is his active and his passive obedience, his suffering obedience to God's law as expressed in these covenants, Jesus not only propitiated, that is turned away, God's wrath, and expiated sin, right? Paid, put away sin, covered, 
but also merited, that's right, I said merited, justification and eternal life for his people. That is, he made a covenant of grace for us. The sole condition of which is faith, which rests in Christ's finished work. And Dr. Godfrey will be talking later about faith alone as the instrument through which we benefit from Christ's work. So what does the Bible say? You know, as I read these fellows, they're always telling me to read the Bible. And as I read them, I don't see much evidence that they're actually reading the Bible. It's like, years ago, Dr. Bergsma made a comment about Jimmy Swaggart. And he said he liked to watch Swaggart preach because he always had a Bible in his hand. He just wished that sometimes Swaggart would open the Bible. <laughs> well, I had that same feeling when I read the, what I call the covenantal moralists. They're always talking about Scripture, but when you get down to particulars, things suddenly become a little wobbly. Sometimes I'm also amazed, uh, frequently amazed, that when I walk into understaffed and poorly run businesses, I don't know if you have this experience, sometimes I wonder if it's a California thing or if it's all over, and I wonder sometimes, how do these people stay in business? And, of course, sometimes they don't. In modern global capitalism, things being what they are, there is typically a correlation at some point between performance and prosperity. Employers demand performance from employees and clients demand performance from firms. In the same way, the magistrate not only requires that I avoid breaking the law, and not only will he punish me when I do break the law, but also he requires that I positively obey it. Try this test. Go out, run into someone really hard with your car. <laughs> Wait around to be arrested. Go pay the penalty and then come back out of prison. You've paid the penalty, right? And then do it again and see what happens. I think they would probably put you in prison again and do it three times and you don't come out anymore. That's because the nature of justice as it is in this world and reflecting God's justice is that not only must there be obedience to the law, but also punishment. But punishment does not delete or eliminate obedience to the law. When authorities capture a criminal, we rightly expect justice, not grace. Economics and civil life illustrate a fundamental principle of human existence. And Paul refers to these fundamental principles as stoicheia, elemental principles. And these elemental principles are ruthless taskmasters. But these ruthless taskmasters of civil law and, and uh, modern capitalist economics are nothing compared to the law of God. As I said in Genesis 2.17, if we look at Adam and Moses, God said, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And he wasn't kidding. The day Adam ate, he died. God said, get out. You are not holy. You are not righteous. He didn't say, well, right? he's not a genial Irish priest. Ah, oh, faith, no. You shouldn't have done it. Why, look, you know, you got the greeblies. Try again. Ah, oh, it'll be fine. God the Son came to the garden and he said, Adam, where are you? And Adam shows up with a pathetic little fig leaf. And God says, oh, look. Here, put this on. 
some alien righteousness provided by God the Son with which he was clothed. That's why Adam wasn't consumed by the wrath of God. God didn't come to Adam in the afternoon when the sun had gone down and it was comfortable. He came to him in the voice or in the spirit of the day, the spirit of judgment. So Adam broke the covenant and and plunged himself and all of us into death, condemnation. But the law continues to demand perfect obedience, even though we are dead in sins and trespasses and at enmity with God. And so Scripture says, Cursed is everyone who does not conform to the words of this law. And it wasn't just the ceremonial law. It wasn't just the civil law. It was the moral law. What does Jesus say the law is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. There's nothing new about that. God, the Son, before he was incarnate, announced these laws to Moses and to the people of God. That's the remarkable thing. You see, it was God the Son who came in the garden. It was God the Son who announced these laws at Sinai. Read Hebrews 12. And it was God the Son who came was born of a virgin, crawled out of her uterus, was held, had an umbilical cord, fed at her breast, went to the temple, was circumcised, was baptized, kept the law. The same God who announced the law kept the law, having become incarnate for us. Deuteronomy 30.10, obey the law, keep his commandments. God hates sin. He's angry continually with sinners. His wrath abides on sin. Judgment, condemnation is what follows disobedience. That's the nature of divine justice. What did Jesus say? We've already looked at it briefly, but we'll look at it some more. Did Jesus set his filial relations over against his legal obligations. No. He didn't do any such thing. He described his own mission repeatedly in terms of performance. To John the Baptist in Matthew 3, he said he came to fulfill all righteousness. And there, at his baptism, formally inaugurated his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. To hungry disciples in John chapter 4, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Note this word, uh, this, this expression. He says literally, in order to do. Jesus did not say it. Now, this is in contrast to Reverend Shepherd, that he came to trust his father, though he certainly did that. And Jesus never, however, thought of himself as having been saved through his faith. As Dr. Baugh asked very poignantly, faith has an object. Who was the object of Jesus' faith? Do you know what these people are actually saying? They're saying that Jesus trusted in the Father, that the Father would accept his best efforts as if it were good enough. What these people have done is they have placed Jesus in the context of what the medievals called congruent merit. Medievals made a twofold distinction in merit, as you've already heard, congruent and condign. Congruent means that God has willed to agree, has, has willed by agreement, by covenant, to accept your best efforts as if they were perfect. 
And, and one late medieval theologian, Gabriel Beale, said, To those who do what is in them, God does not deny grace. To those who do what is in them, God does not deny grace. That's exactly what the, uh, the, the covenantal moralists, the neonomians, the federal visionists have done to Jesus. They have said that God, having seen what Jesus did, that he did his best, did not deny him grace. Is that, is that Jesus' self-conception of what he was doing? His best? Hoping the Father would impute perfection to it? Or did Jesus have some other conception? As I read the Scriptures, and as the Reformed Confessions read the Scriptures, and as all the mainstream Reformed theologians in the late 16th, late 16th century, through the 17th century, into the 18th century, all agreed that, in fact, Jesus came not to do his best, hoping the Father would impute perfection to it, but that, in fact, he did perfectly obey his Father. My food is that I should do the will of him who sent me, and that I might fulfill his work. This is legal language. And yet Jesus never contrasted that with his sonship. This is nothing if not contractual or business language. I just hired uh, some landscapers from our congregation who've done a wonderful job. There was a father and son company. I watched them work. Now, Randy loves his son, John. But John was obligated to do certain things. When you work for your dad, you must do what he said, or there is penalty to be paid. There is a certain contractual legal relationship. That doesn't mean at the end of the day, Randy doesn't love John. He loves him very much. But that doesn't mean that John isn't obligated to do what his father requires him to do and what I'm paying them to do. Great sums of money, it seems to me. But that's another thing. I don't mind, Randy. I don't mind. It's worth it. So it is with Jesus. And it was Jesus who came and described his work and the nature of the law this way. Matthew 5, 18 and 19. Not a yod or a, or a dot shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever tries to loose the law, whoever tries to wedge in just a little congruent merit and teaches others to wedge in a little congruent merit shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. According to Jesus, the law has to be accomplished. It has to be fulfilled. What the law requires must be done. And that's why Jesus was so emphatic with this self-righteous lawyer. He did not say, look, I know you're never really going to hit the mark, so do your best and God will take care of the rest. He said, do this and live. And that's why did Jesus say, do this and live? Because he came to do how do you know the greatness of your sin and misery? You know it from the law of God. The law teaches you your sin and misery. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy and the law is good. The problem is you're not holy. I'm not holy. You're not good. I'm not good. I walk around campus. I ask students, how are you? They always say, I'm good. <laughs> and I try to say, no, you're not good. <laughs> if you were good, you wouldn't need a Savior. You're well. Praise God, you're well. But Jesus is good. Why do you call me good, he said. Because he was good, you see. Well, what does Paul say? Paul, the apostle of covenant gnomism. Now, we'll start with James first. Then we'll go to Paul. James noted three times in, 
in his epistle that the law requires doing and not hearing. Of course, these folks are suggesting that by your doing, God will approve of you. Paul, in the same way, said, It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers, Romans 2.13. And that verse does not mean, by any reasonable interpretation, that we are the doers of the law with the help of the Holy Spirit. I defy any sensible person to read Romans 2 and Romans 3 and tell me that Paul thinks that we are not so sinful that we can do the law even with the help of the Holy Spirit. I, I just can't see how that's possible. We whose mouths are as Paul describes them, whose hearts are as Paul describes them, whose minds are as Paul describes them, whose wills are as Paul describes them, bent, darkened, corrupted, dead, we are going to do, even with the help of the Holy Spirit, what the law requires, and therefore God will approve of us? As my English friends say, not lightly. The doing, according to Paul, is essential to this performance. It's essential to being approved by God. That's why he said, he quoted Deuteronomy 27, 26, in Galatians 3.10, everyone who relies on the law, the works of the law, are under a curse. Why? It is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything which is written in the book of the law. Paul knew that in Adam we have all fallen, Romans 5.12, and we're dead in sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2.1. We're not capable of doing this performance. Therefore, he says, it's evident that no one is justified before God by law-keeping. The law, as I said, is wholly just and good, Romans 7.12. But our compliance is not. That's why he says in Galatians 4 that Christ was born under the law to redeem those under the law. Jesus didn't come under the law for himself. He is the God-man. Not mere, cre- not, not mere creature, but true man and true God. And therefore he voluntarily placed himself under the law for our sake to do for us what we could not do. The Apostle Paul says uh, in Romans 5.10, we shall live, part of Romans 5.10, in or by his life. Those are Paul's words, not mine. And of course, that all leads up to Romans 5, uh, 12 through 21. But let's just look at Romans 5, 19 through 21. Paul establishes this, this parallelism between the first Adam, whom he calls the type of the one to come, in verse 14, and the second Adam. So you have two Adams, the first Adam and the second Adam. What did the first Adam do? He sinned. And what's our relationship to him? Well, we have this legal relationship to him. When he sinned, we sinned. And the old Puritans used to say, in Adam's fall, sinned we all. Adam did not set a bad example, but we are so legally, federally related to him that when he sinned, when he fell, we fell. When he died, we died. But there is a... uh, Well, one more. And where there is no law, in verse 13 he says... There's no sin, but there was sin in Adam because he broke the law. Why? Because he was in a covenant of works. But there was a second Adam, the the, the second head of redeemed humanity. And, And what did he do? Well, just as death came through disobedience, 
Please notice that. It's disobedience. It doesn't even say a lack of faith. It says disobedience. That's legal language. That's business language, but certainly legal language. And, and notice the instrumentality of Adam's disobedience and the nature of that disobedience. Adam disobeyed actively. He actively broke God's righteous law. And notice the forensic legal frame of reference. Adam and Christ were family men, to be sure, but they were also legal representatives. Adam is our first parent. That's a family relationship. Adam was God's son by adoption, as it were. But that didn't, play, that didn't prevent God from placing him in, legal, uh, in a legal situation. But there is, as I say, a second Adam. As Paul says, Christ, he says, the second Adam, obeyed God's law, and it is as if we obeyed that law in him. Through the one act of obedience, in verse 19, through the one act of, of obedience, the many who are united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, shall be constituted righteous. We are constituted, we are declared, we are reckoned, we are considered. This is all legal language. Because Jesus obeyed the law. When you go into court, the judge does not declare you not guilty and righteous because you're a good person. Because you all speed. You all speed. And you all do other numerous, minor, and sometimes major civil infractions. You're not legally good. You're just waiting to be caught. <laughs> You're so glad when you go zooming down the 15 and it's that other guy. <laughs> but you are, when the judge says, not guilty. And when he says righteous, you are righteous nonetheless. It's not contingent on your intrinsic moral perfection. It's contingent on what the judge says. They can't pull you over and say, well, look here, we want another go. No, you have a piece of paper that says righteous. Richard Longnecker, a New Testament scholar, not terribly sympathetic to our point of view ordinarily, also sees here obedience as referring to Jesus' active obedience and not just his suffering, not just the passive aspect of his obedience. It refers to, as he says, Christ's humble submission to the Mosaic law by which he fulfilled all of its obligations. What was the one act of righteousness? Was it his baptism? Was it the beating by the soldiers? Was it the cross? No, it was Adam's, it was Christ's entire obedient life, just as Adam's disobedience plunged us into sin and death. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus humbled, that, that, uh, that as he humbled himself, he was obedient. When did he humble himself? Only at his baptism? Only at Golgotha? No. Having been found, it says, in human form, he humbled himself. Having been found in human form. When was he found in human form? When somebody said, push. 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 I was in there. I've seen that stuff happen. I saw it through a black and white viewfinder, so I didn't pass out. <laughs> he, having been found in human form from the moment of his incarnation, became obedient. How obedient? Obedient to death. What kind of death? Even the death of the cross. 
It's one fabric of obedience with two different aspects, active and passive. Same in the Hebrews, same in the book of Hebrews, and same in, in the Apocalypse as well. The writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Why? Because of his suffering, he, he, why? For us, and because of his suffering, the things that he suffered the, uh, of death, he was crowned with glory in order for many sons to be led to glory. The archegos of our salvation, whatever the archegos is, it doesn't matter here. He had to be made perfect. How? Through suffering. And how does Hebrews uh, understand his suffering? It understands his suffering from the moment God the Son became incarnate. It understands the purpose of the incarnation to literally propitiate the sins of the people, to turn away the wrath of God from the sins of the people. In other words, his incarnation was not for himself, as Piscator said. Piscator said Jesus owed his obedience for himself. Norm Shepard says Jesus owed his obedience for himself. It's not for you. Hebrews says that's not true. It's for you. According to Hebrews, Jesus became like us in order to do nothing else but represent us in his life and in his death. Because he's really like us, he suffered in every respect sin accepted. He was tempted as we are in every respect. Did he not actively persevere through that temptation? Yes, he did. And so time gets away, so we we have to run a little bit here. In the apocalypse, why is Jesus called worthy? He's called worthy because in chapter 5 it says he conquered. He's not worthy simply by virtue of his deity, although that's certainly true. He's worthy because he conquered. So what are the effects if we give up the doctrine of the imputation of the active obedience of Jesus? Well, there are several. First, uh, the the theological consequences uh, are to do with sin. According to Scripture, as we've already suggested, and we'll be quick about this, we are profoundly fallen. But the truth is, in the history of the church, we have not been willing to believe that very consistently. Augustine and some followers of Augustine, but then shortly thereafter, by the 6th century, Most people would say, yes, we're sinful, but we're not so sinful that we can't cooperate with grace. And that became the predominant medieval view. And the church becomes a factory of grace in order to uh, enable you to become good so that God can say, yes, you really are good. And Martin Luther said, you know what, that's not what the Scripture says. As he was lecturing through the Psalms and reading Augustine's commentary on the Psalms, he, he rediscovered the biblical teaching about sin that... It's a terrible offense against God, and its natural consequence is death. And that we're not just a little wounded. It's not just a flesh wound. It's death. Honestly, as I read these people, I get the sense that they don't really believe in sin anymore. As I always tell my students, I not only believe in sin, I practice it. Maybe they don't need the imputation of the active obedience of Jesus, but I do. The last day, I, you know, maybe there'll be two lines for the good people and the really wicked ones. And they, if they're good people, they go ahead, have at it. As for me, I'm going to find Jesus and I'm going to hide right behind him. What about divine justice? At the heart of Piscator's complaint against imputa- du- double imputation or imputation of active obedience is that it misunderstands God's justice. The problem is that Piscator 
uh, had uh, an a priori idea. He had an idea before he ever came to Scripture about what justice must be. And he said, justice is such that we all know, right, you've heard this before, all reasonable people know X, that justice cannot require both obedience and punishment. It's one or the other. But Scripture doesn't say that. And so we refuse to climb into Procrustes' bed. It, 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 if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Piscator's view doesn't fit the Scriptures. And if we had time, we could look at Noah, we could look at Paul again, but we have to press on. What about the work of Christ? One of the criticisms is that uh, active obedience downplays uh, the work of Christ on the cross. As we've seen, our Lord said he came to be the perfectly obedient Son of Man. He said to, in Luke 19, verse 10, that he came to, sake, to seek and to save the lost. Did he come to make salvation possible for those who cooperate with grace? Well, I don't find Scripture saying that anywhere. I do find that in Thomas Aquinas. I do find that in William of Ockham. I do find that in a number of medieval theologians, including some very strong predestinarian theologians in the 15th century, Wycliffe and Gregory of Rimini and many others. Luther learned that late medieval predestinarian theology from his father confessor, Johann von Staupitz. This is what Staupitz was preaching in the chapel when Luther was in the monastery. And it's exactly what Luther rejected. Luther said, yes, he came to realize grace is sovereign. But saying sovereign grace doesn't answer how we're right with God. Sovereign grace, it's not enough simply to say sovereign grace. You have to, you have to explain properly the, the ground of our righteousness before God, which is Christ's obedience to the law, which is imputed to us. Number four, what about the mediatorial work of Christ? The Arminian theologian Richard Watson and and some, of, uh, some Reformed critics of double imputation have a problem with Jesus' mediatorial office. Richard Watson said that Christ was not our representative, despite the repeated assertions of Paul and Jesus to the contrary. And now some of our Reformed folk are also suggesting that Jesus isn't really our mediator. But Scripture says there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 9 and 12 say that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. What is a mediator but someone who represents other people? That's why Christ was born under the law. Now let me respond to some specific objections. We've touched a little bit on the justice of God. Does it make God unjust? Well, I've offered some biblical arguments and I've offered some theological arguments, but there's some historical business, and I'll be very quick about this, but this isn't just my opinion. It's not just John Murray's opinion. It's not just Bob Godfrey's opinion. It's not just our faculty's opinion. It was the opinion of churches. Now, these men say they believe in the visible institutional church. In fact, they say we don't have a high enough view of the church. That may well be true. I say let us then submit to the reading of Scripture as agreed to by our churches. Four times the French Reformed Synod said, we affirm active obedience and we repudiate anyone who denies active obedience. In 1603, the French Reformed Synod said the following, Synod in no wise 
approving the dividing of causes so nearly conjoined in this great effect of divine grace, and judging those arguments produced by him for the, for the defense of his cause, this is responding to Piscator, his cause weak and invalid, doth order that all the pastors in the respective churches of this kingdom do wholly conform themselves in their teaching to that form of sound words, meaning the French Confession, Article 18, which had hitherto been taught amongst us and is contained in the Holy Scriptures, to wit, the whole obedience of Christ, both in his life and death, is imputed to us for the full remission of our sins and acceptance into eternal life. In short, that this being but one and the same obedience is our entire and perfect justification. They said it in 1603. They said it in 1607. They said it in 1612. They said it in 1614. You can rarely get Reformed sentence to say the same thing twice. You can almost never get them to say the same thing three times. But four times? I think they were serious about this. And every one of our mainstream theologians said, you know what, the French synods were right. And in 1618, 1619, the great synod of Dort said, you know what, the French synod was right. Where did they find this? And, and we've got to stop. Time is against us. But they found it in Calvin. Institutes 2.16.5. There are two parts. Let me, let me give you some help in reading the tradition. There are two parts to the doctrine of active obedience. That Jesus obeyed the law for us, and on that basis, our sins are remitted. That's the doctrine of active obedience. Jesus kept the law for us. And on that basis, God forgives our sins and looks, as, looks at us not only as forgiven, but as if, as Heidelberg 60 says, we ourselves had done all that Jesus did for us. If you find that teaching, even if you don't find the words active and passive obedience, but if you find the substance of that teaching in Calvin, Institutes 2, 16, 5, in Olivian, in his lectures on Romans 5, you can see all this in the book when it's published, in Ursinus, in his larger catechism, when he asks in question 137, what about rewards? And he says, no one earns rewards except Jesus. It's the teaching not only of our synods, it's the teaching of our confessions, Belgian Confession 22, 23, 24, Heidelberg 60, Heidelberg 37, And it's the teaching of the entirety of the mainstream of Reformed theology. Okay, so then to conclude. In his systematic theology, the great German liberal with whom J. Gresson Machen studied, Wilhelm Hermann, provided a clue to the loss of the doctrine of active obedience. How is it we've come to a place where we can have where we have to have this conference? And he provided a clue when he criticized another German liberal, Albrecht Rischel, for failing to recognize the, quote, chief defect in Protestant orthodoxy. Quoting, by a, that, by adopting this doctrine of what Christ did in his life on earth and is secretly doing now in man, one is redeemed. Rather, Hermann argued, redemption is not about hearing and believing a doctrine but is the, quote, present experience of the reality of his person. Now, we don't need to juxtapose those two things. 
Brothers and sisters, experience comes and goes. The finished work of Christ is a fixed, objective, historical reality on which you can hang your entire life and on which I suggest you must. As the voluntary surety entailed by this eternal intra-Trinitarian covenant of redemption and as the second Adam required by the covenant of works, God the Son became incarnate to fulfill the legal obligations of those covenants. To provide the active and passive obedience for all of Christ's people required by the law of God, he came to accomplish the righteousness which is required of creatures and to earn our salvation. And his righteousness is imputed to believers and received through faith alone. And that receiving and imputing is nothing more or less than the covenant of grace. There's a lot at stake. There's much at stake if we take up the offer of the Neonomians, of the Amaraldians, of the Socinians, of the Arminians, and the Federal Vision. And let me leave you with this. In the 19th century, the Scots Presbyterian theologian James Buchanan saw very clearly what was at stake. He warned us that if we deny Christ's active obedience as the, quote, believer's title to, the, uh, to eternal life, we, he says, leave open a door for the introduction of one's own personal obedience as the ground of future hope. What Buchanan saw in the 19th century has come to pass. God give us grace to believe the gospel and to trust it entirely. And may he save our churches from the affliction of moralism.